You're listening to Teaching STEM for Real, a podcast dedicated to for real conversations on educational equity in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics education. I'm your host, Dr. Lena Bakshi McLean, STEM education disruptor, justice advocate, certified ruffler of feathers, and a wannabe comedian. I'm also the founder of the nonprofit STEM for Real. If you want to explore what anti-racist and socially just instruction looks like in our classrooms, schools, and beyond, for real, you're in the right place. Let's dive right in. On today's episode, we are joined by Beth Lacretz. And do we get spicy talking about special education and advocating for the co-teaching and inclusion models. Beth is a passionate advocate for inclusion and has dedicated her career to inclusive education. So many times we think about special education, it's always about a secluded classroom and an obscure part of school or another track or something separate. What would it look like if it was all together? And how would that serve every single student? After teaching students with mild to severe disabilities in inclusive and self-contained classrooms, she began consulting with schools through the efforts of families that wanted their children with severe disabilities included in their neighborhood schools. And thus, LaCrette's Creative Support Services was born. So what does that look like? What do you think? Should we keep models where students with disabilities are excluded? Or should we start considering models where everyone is included and we lean into differentiation? Let's listen in and see where this conversation takes us. Beth, I'm so glad you're here. You are just this force, this mecca um, of of knowledge when it comes to special education. And, And we're just so honored to have you. Lena, I am so delighted to talk to you. You know, every conversation we have is always brilliant and uplifting. And I'm just, I'm really happy and honored that you invited me to join you on your podcast. Yes. Yes. Okay. Now I have to, I have to just share with our audience. You took something, you saw an issue in special education, not just an issue, like a systemic problem. You saw that and you created an entire organization that addressed it. So I want to just start with your origin story. What was the problem that you saw and how did you come up with the solution to it? Well, I kind of just fell into it, to tell you the truth. My training and background was in Syracuse University. And the focus of our training was all, including all kids in gen ed. So kids that in other places people would have in other environments, other schools, we included them all. And that's what I learned how to do. It was just second nature to me. And then when I moved back to sort of the area where I grew up, nobody was doing anything even close to that. Not even, it was like, so I felt like I moved to another country. That's how different the practice was. So I taught in a few different places, trying to bring what I knew to situations, some successfully, some unsuccessfully. And I decided to take a year off of teaching to try to find a school system that was in alignment with those values that I brought from Syracuse about inclusion. And so I thought I would do a little consulting on the side while I was looking for this school district. So simultaneously, 
I had gotten involved with a parent organization, mostly parents of kids who were labeled with significant disabilities, severe disabilities, who wanted their kids included. And so I became their sounding board. And then they started asking their school districts to hire me because they had these beautiful kids that nobody knew how to include, who functions significantly differently than kids who are at their age level in their grade span. And that's how I got started doing this. And so districts started to hire me because here's this kid with intellectual disability and cerebral palsy, and we don't know what to do with them. And their parents want them in a gen ed class. And so that's how I started this work. And now 32 plus years later, my business has grown through word of mouth and we support all aspects of inclusion. Unfortunately, very few people want to do what I started with. Very few school districts want to take that on. Mostly we're supporting people to co-teach and sometimes we're really working on inclusion, the full piece of including all kids. So much to unpack because, you know, I heard things like, they the parents want their students included and that's not often encouraged and and i also heard you throw out terms like there's co-teaching and there's inclusion mm -hmm. what is there a difference oh yeah there sure is so inclusion is a philosophy lena it's a philosophy that says we all belong together and it really has nothing to do with school it's really about how you view the world and so people will say of course i'm inclusive but then we see things like white people moving out of communities when brown people move in. And we see we recently had a neighborhood close to where I live where a group home of adults with disabilities was moving in and the community protested. That's not an inclusive mindset. Yeah. So inclusion is that we all belong together and we've got to figure it out. And we're going to make spaces in our world that allow everybody to participate. Not we're going to set up this space and then try to figure out what to do with X, Y, Z person, but actually our spaces are going to accommodate all people and that we are all at a loss if we leave somebody out and we all gain and benefit if everybody is there contributing their gifts. So that's what inclusion is. And when you apply that to school, that looks like all kids learning, working, playing together, even if their goals are not the same. So you can include kids in all kinds of ways. And one of those ways is a service delivery model called co-teaching. That service delivery model is a gen ed teacher and a special ed teacher working together to teach an integrated group of kids where both teachers are equally responsible for every single kid in that environment. And we could talk more in depth about that. You could also co-teach uh, here in New York, at least we have a regulation for English language learners who need to be co-taught. So that could be an ENL teacher and a gen ed teacher working together to reach all kids. So co-teaching is just one service delivery model that allows you to include kids. But what we see, at least where we are in most school systems, is they're co-teaching, but they're not including all kids. So they're co-teaching these kids. But these kids who have much some more significant needs in some way or another are still in segregated environments. Wow. And and I'm I'm still I see that too. In fact, one of our one of our videos went semi-viral. And that was Woo! I I know I always get excited with social media. I'm like, oh, okay, someone's watching. Yay. Yes. And, and I saw and the the post was that your special education teacher 
that is in the room is not your aide. Right. And we see a lot of that. We see a lot of, okay, well, that's the special ed teacher. They can go with those kids. And yay, I'm co-teaching. Well, you know what's so funny? We call that why, the why we have a job model. And we say that in our trainings. <laughs> that's why people hire us. School district administrators call me and say, why am I paying two professional salaries when one of the people is walking around like an aide? Or they're taking turns walking around like an aide. And so our work with teachers around co-teaching, whether they're including all kids or just a pocket of kids, is to move away from whole class instruction and move into heterogeneous small group instruction for new instruction. So that's what we focus on. So I, I know, Lena, I've been around for a really long time in the education world now. And what's considered best practice swings all over the place and always had. The only thing that's been consistent in my 40 years in education is the benefits of small group instruction. Yes. Yes. So when you have two professionals in a classroom, why one person or two people are standing in front of 25 kids is beyond me. I know STEM is your thing. So if you're teaching high school bio, then one teacher is teaching about meiosis and then the other teacher is teaching about mitosis. And then some kids are working independently on vocabulary or doing an annotated reading. And then the kids rotate to all three. So instead of teaching 25 kids meiosis and mitosis, you teach eight at a time. That's mm -hmm. the thing that you're there to teach. And so you know exactly who gets it, exactly who doesn't get it. You can differentiate on the spot and both people are actually teaching in small groups. So that's just a high school science example of one of the co-teaching models that involves small group instruction. Hi, it's Lena, and I'm here to tell you about STEM for Real Professional Learning. We do things differently where we take on anti-racism, anti-bias, and social justice in the STEM classrooms. When we say STEM access for all students, we mean including emergent multilingual learners, students with disabilities, and students in alternative education. Visit us at www.stemforreal.org forward slash partnership and learn more about increasing attendance, engagement, and joy in STEM for all for real. I'm curious, what are your thoughts on the special day classroom, SDC? Oh, yeah, we call those self-contained here. So in my world, in my brain, we shouldn't have any of those things. Those places don't, shouldn't exist. If we're fully inclusive and we can use all of our resources to have all kids learn together, then we don't have a need for places like that. And so one of the things, and I, this is a very radical thing to say, we but like I'll say it, it anyway, because yeah. you know me, uh, we love to get into the, the big picture radical stuff together, is that the continuum of services that's required by the least restrictive environment clause of IDEA actually prohibits inclusion. And the, the, the reason that I say that is that every state is required to have a continuum from the most restrictive to the least restrictive environment. So what that means is that teachers have a kid in XYZ environment. So say they're in co-teaching, they're in a gen ed setting with a co-teacher, and it's not working out well for whatever reason. There's always a place to send them. This place over here could be better that place over there, that segregated school, that segregated classroom would be better for them. But where I was trained, there was no place to send people. So we had no choice but to figure it out. 
We had no choice. So, I mean, not that we viewed it that way, but so you bring in different brains, people with different knowledge, people with different backgrounds, people with different ideas to problem solve and figure it out. But because there's always a more restrictive place you could send kids, the problem solving stops at some place. Particularly because not that many people really believe that all kids should be included. So can I give you an example? Yes, yes. Let's get into it. I have a couple of great ones for you in in your area, in, in science. So I was working with a fourth grade team which had a student with intellectual disability, she had Down syndrome, in, included in their class. It was not a co-teaching situation. So she received what's called direct and indirect consultant teacher services. I don't know if that's a terminology. It's different that people use different words for each service in different states. But what that means is there's a special ed teacher assigned to her overall that monitors her IEP and consults with the classroom teacher to help them figure out how to program for that student. They might make the modifications. They would help the power professional know how to interact with the kid if there is a power professional. So in this situation, there was a gen ed teacher, a TA, and the consultant teacher. And then I was hired as an outside agency to come in and help them learn how to do this. So this teacher came to us with the electricity unit. And so the first thing that people don't realize they need to do when they take on a unit, when they're including somebody who's very different, is really delve deep into the objectives and the concepts of that unit and pick a couple that you're going to have this student learn. Because if they're that significantly different, they're not going to learn all of it. So let's get ahead of it. Let's be proactive and let's create really concrete, reasonable objectives for this person. So long story short, I could go on and on, is we, I was there at the beginning of the unit and at the end of the unit. We were having a team meeting with this girl's mom and the whole teaching team. And the electricity unit was over. And the gen ed teacher said, well, what I decided to do was to have the TA verbally give her parts of the unit test. And the first two questions were things like, name two things that conduct electricity. And so the girl didn't have to write. She didn't even have to speak. She pointed to her TA's earrings and necklace, which were metal. And then when asked, what are the, can you tell us two things that don't collect, in, uh, uh, there's the word, electricity. She went in her desk, and I, I don't remember what she pulled out, but it was like a crayon and an eraser. And so she had clearly understood the concept. She wasn't going to take the test, but she understood the concept. And then they talked about that she, with the collaboration of the OT, was able to put, a, put the circuit together. They had a circuit building station in the room. And the mom just started to bawl. And I said to her, what's going on? And she said, if she was in that separate class for kids who are all intellectually disabled or who all have Down syndrome, the only thing about electricity that she would have learned is don't put your fingers in the socket. Wow. And that's true. And that's true. So did she learn the depth and breadth of what, what, what every fourth grader learned about electricity? Probably not. But was she exposed to all of it? Did she work on her own personal goals and achieve them? Absolutely. So that's what inclusion could look like. But most people look at a girl like this girl and say, she just doesn't belong here. She'd be better off there. I want to give you one more example, if I can. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So fifth grade, different classroom, different kid, but also with Down syndrome. And this boy had less skills than this girl had. And they were doing a unit on acids and bases. And we're about to do, you know, the classic pH experiment with the litmus paper. And so the teacher came to me and was just like, Beth, what, what am I going to do? And so what we did was we looked at this kid's IEP. 
and we lifted goals off his IEP that he could work on in this lab. So one of them was that he had an occupational therapy goal, a fine motor goal of pincer grasp, which is being able to hold something like this. Yeah. And so we made him the official dropper of solutions. So he was part of the lab setup team and he had a beaker and he had a dropper and he put solutions in all the beakers for all the lab groups as with the other, with the other kids who were putting together the lab for the teacher. So he worked on that goal. And then in his lab group, his job, he had a goal of describing things in three words. So his job in the lab was to look at the litmus paper and describe it. So he had, he said things like, it is wet or it turned red. So he was working on a speech and language goal in this lab. He was also working on his social skills by working in this lab. So did he learn about acids and bases? I honestly don't know. His ability to communicate with us was so small that we didn't have a way to really assess that. But he was a part of it. He was included in it. And he worked on two of his IEP goals in the classroom, as opposed to down the hall, somewhere else, completely disconnected from what's going on for fifth graders. Wow. I, I'm just amazed at how this is able to happen. And yet the, the rate of, of moments like this happening is so small, so far and few in between. It's like they're like tiny islands of success. What yep. systemically has to change? Everything. <laughs> it sounds like Literally it. everything. I, I mean, you know, what's sad for me is that like cases like these two kids that I've just ex explained, like an administrator or a parent really pushes for it or an administrator believes in it and we come in and we train and we help people learn it and then it goes by the wayside. It's because most people don't believe it's the right thing. Mm -hmm. Most people inherently, people with disabilities are still the group, the population that most people believe are better off somewhere else. And so until that mindset shifts in our culture, parents and individuals who are disabled are continually going to have to fight this. I was about to write about this today, but I don't know. Did you watch the Grammys? I did. I did. Okay. So did you see Joni? Did you see Joni Mitchell? I did not, but I heard it was such a good performance. So I saw the clip of her at the Newport Folk Festival that was at last summer or the summer before. And really what has happened is Brandi Carlisle and other people in her life have figured out what supports she needs to give her gifts again to the world. She's not doing this on her own. She's not able to walk onto the stage. She's not able to know exactly what to say. She needs supports. But because... She was already this immensely valued person in our culture. It's seen as beautiful and wonderful, and it is. I mean, I cried my eyes out. However, for people who are born with disabilities, like what Joni has right now, who'd have difficulty with the many things she has difficulty with, unfortunately, the intrinsic value is not perceived in the same way as somebody who becomes disabled after they've already shown what their value is. Wow. Yeah. And so 
We don't spend our time looking at folks and going, how do we include them in our community? How do we make, I'm not, and I'm not saying that nobody does, but I'm saying overall as a culture, it's, oh, isn't this great that there's this group home? Or isn't this great that there's this special school for these people? Or isn't it great that there's this great class down the hall for them? And again, not because people are terrible people, it's just a worldview. Mm -hmm. It's just the way people believe. And people believe that special ed places have some magic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we know that the long-term results of those separate classrooms in terms of employment and, and higher education are very, very poor. Can we talk a little bit more about that, about the, the placement process too? Because I remember teaching, I was teaching algebra to a, to a special day class mm. and and that, and I was thinking a lot of the designations were emotionally disturbed or learning disability. So there were these, these designations. Mm -hmm. And the, when I was teaching, though, the, the students were not drastically different or any different than the students in my general education class. Huh? So what is going on there? That's a great, great, great question. I think, again, there is this just inherent belief system that somehow separate is better for them. And again, that's not to say that certain kids do need moments away from large groups of people and, and that sometimes need a very small group situation. I'm, I'm not denying any of that, but we start, we don't start with everybody belongs together and then let's see how we're gonna individualize the different people. We start with these kinds of people belong here and these kinds of people belong here and these kinds of people belong here. And in this day and age where we are working so hard on DEI, uh, often disability is left out of that conversation. That there is still the belief. I, I, there aren't a lot of people in the education world who would say that children of XYZ race are better off altogether over there but they would say that about people, kids with disabilities in many places still. So, you know, in that instance that you're talking about, Lena, my guess is that somebody decided that this handful of kids were better off in a smaller environment and often classes like that don't work so well. Whoa. Okay. All right. So now <laughs> that's, that's definitely something to chew on. I want to know, what are the issues, because you talk about race and you talk about disability, you talk about DEI, uh -huh. and yet they get conflated when it comes to special education. And there's a lot of intersectionality. And, totally. and we see, at least I've seen, an overrepresentation of oh. black and brown students, particularly black and brown boys in special totally. education. Absolutely. Absolutely. So is there a question there? That's just a statement. Like there's, that, I don't, <laughs> it just is, it just is. And I don't know about where the places that you've taught or the places that you're working with now in your company, but where I live, most of the teachers are white still, mm -hmm. and the kids are not. And so the issues of cultural responsiveness are tremendous, mm -hmm. tremendous. And yes, there is a, there is a well-known all over the United States, over over representation of kids of color in special ed. Absolutely, 
but nobody would say that they're separating them because they're of a different race. I see. Nobody would say that. You know, they're not right. going to make the class for the black boys, or at least they're not going to verbally say that that's what it is. So then they find this way to, and, and through the special education classification. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm not saying that that's their intent. You know, I'm not saying that the people who are labeling kids are trying to do that. I just think that that's the inherent nature of institutional racism. Yeah. That just exists. When I was in college, I took a class on racism, Cornell University, and a long time ago. And we had this amazing, amazing professor, and we read this book called The Portraits of White Racism. So I learned about this whole notion of institutional racism in the, 19, in the 80s. And he talked about the biases that existed at that time in IQ testing. Mm-hmm. And he gave us an example, a very concrete example that I've never forgotten. He probably gave us others, but for some reason, this one stuck with me. And it was, take these four letters and arrange them to spell a sport. And the letters were O, O, P, and L. Okay? And so kids said pool. And it was wrong because the answer was polo. Oh, wow. I was thinking pool. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Because polo was the correct answer because guess who wrote those tests? Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I don't know what the, I don't study, I don't study IQ tests or anything like that, but I'm sure there still are some inherent biases Mm -hmm. in those tests. And I I certainly know at that time there were, but certainly, you know, black boys are looked at in relation to ability to sit still, ability to attend, all those things and get labeled very easily, more easily than other populations of kids. And I've even had some of my staff say to me, hey, Beth, I'm in this classroom and there's, it's a mostly white group of kids. And then there's this brown boy and they treat him totally different than everybody else in the room. Oh, gosh. So we have those issues. So there's a tremendous intersectionality. And then there's the belief system about people with disabilities that they're better off over here because it's going to be better for them. Mm -hmm. So you combine all that together and you still have the situation where parents are fighting to have their kids included who have significant disabilities and where we still have a lot of separate classrooms. I see. And okay, so so now we obviously see a huge issue with the system. Correct. And and let's talk about the, the pre-service teachers because I, I've taught pre-service teachers. Uh-huh. And we I think when I taught special education, it was maybe an hour of one of my classes. And we focused more on, on science methods. Yep. And, and that's just the nature of the syllabus and whatnot. And assuming so that there's another um, special education class that they take. So I'm thinking that our future teachers, our pre-service teachers, they're taking either a class in special ed here, maybe another um, hour or two in their methods course. And then that's it. And then there, and then, and now there's an expectation, hey, you should be teaching, you should be co-teaching, ready, set, go. Right. Exactly. And there's a lot of ready, set, going we have in pre-service. I I actually have a dear friend and colleague who is a professor at a local college doing pre-service, teaching teachers how to teach, and she's focused on special ed. And 
and that our state is starting to change the requirements for special ed, making them even more, even more or less. I'm having trouble with English right now. You know, having the requirements being even smaller than, one th- than what they used to be. So yeah, a lot of teachers don't have any exposure to to the depth of what's needed for kids with disabilities. And even people who are duly certified often, you know, they've taken four special ed classes and that's it. And then so to get me started, talk about student teaching. You student teach for six weeks and then you move on somewhere else for six weeks. And how do you understand the depth and breadth of what needs to happen from September to June? Right. For all kids. In that contract, like where I went to, where I, when I went to school a long time ago, and in the specific <laughs> program I was in, my master's program, we taught full time from September to June in the same classroom. And it's where I learned everything that I know because I saw yeah. it all, the whole process. And because of the, the tremendous teacher shortage, right? We just got to get teachers, we got to get them anywhere, anyhow. Let's go. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why we have jobs. My company is that people don't know how to do this stuff. And so they need somebody to come in and do PD around how to do some of this stuff because people don't know. They don't have the training that they need. And I, I want to go back to this being a, a, a huge systemic issue. Yes. And, and yes, while your company is fantastic and great, you're... <laughs> There are way too many schools and way too many districts. I know your company can take on a lot, but no. at some point we need to start from the the beginning and rebuild. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know how to do that, to be honest, but we talk about it all the time. You know, the system and the structures are problematic. Even the structure of school. We do this for 45 minutes and then we move on. Right, right. And even the the under the guise of rigor becomes, we do a completely different lesson every day. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter if you got lesson one, but we're moving on to lesson 2.2. Yes. yes. And so th- there's so many things about the way we're currently structured that need to be changed. Um, wow. And it, it overwhelms me to think about it, to be perfectly honest. Let's talk about the parents, because I heard you talk about the parents that's saying, I want my child included. I want yes. them to be in this classroom. Yes. What about the parents that say, I don't want their child in my class with my student? Right. So you're talking about the parents of kids without disabilities. Correct. Who are saying, right. And so those people, those people, that sounded <laughs> terrible, <laughs> people who say things like that have had no experiences of being around people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. So they're terrified. Just like how people of different backgrounds and different races or whatever. And they're also under the notion that their child's education is going to suffer because this child is in this class. Yeah. So one of the things we work with administrative bodies on is how do you communicate about what's happening in these classes to the whole community? So just the way they would talk about what their STEM curriculum is, mm-hmm. just the way they would talk about what their reading program is. This is what's happening in these classes. Your child is in a class with two teachers and therefore is learning math X number of days a week and a group of seven. Mm-hmm. Your, your child is going to get 
the attention of two learning specialists throughout the year. There are so many ways to help parents to understand that this isn't a damaging thing for their kid. <laughs> so it's about education. It's about talking to their community about inclusive education and what the purposes are and what the benefits are for all students because there's a whole laundry list of them. Yeah. But mostly what happens is that nobody gets any education. Mm -hmm. So rumors fly. I'll, I'll never forget this. This years ago. We are really big proponents of teachers talking to kids about what's going on in their classroom, including if there's a kid who's significantly different, being honest about it. It's like, yeah, he does rock when he is excited and that's okay. And that's what this is why, because this is what his body needs. You know, just very like matter of fact, not giving away confidential information. But there was a boy in the school that I was working with who had a form of cerebral palsy that affected the aperture of his mouth. Mm -hmm. And so he spit when he talked, which for little kids is gross. They, yeah. That's how they're going to react. So I said, well, let's do an education thing for the kids in the class and the kids in his grade about what's going on with his mouth. We could do exercises and show them what happens and why it happens. and what they can do so that they're not spit on if they're concerned about that and to allay their fears that he, they're going to get sick from him because that was the thing. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. So all year, the principal was getting complaints from the parents that their kids were getting sick from this kid because mm -hmm. they weren't willing to sit down with the class and deal with the reality of the issue. So one of the things we also specialize in is this whole notion of community building. And why parents are saying, I don't want my kid in a class with that kid is often based on rumor, speculation, lack of understanding, and lack of information about what's really going on. So that takes wow. a whole other look at how we build community in our schools, in our classrooms, and in our larger school community. And what I love about your company policy, really, or, or just kind of framework is that you make sure that you work with the administrators and the teachers. It is yes. a non-negotiable. Correct. Correct, correct, correct. We must be in a room with the administrators in order to work with their teachers. We won't sign a contract unless we do that because this can't, cultural change of a whole system doesn't happen with a classroom teacher. They contribute to it, but they are not responsible for it. And in addition, when responsible for it by themselves. And mm -hmm. in addition, any PD from our perspective that's provided to teachers has to be provided to admins or else they're not on the same page. They're not speaking the same language. They don't have the same expectations. And I've seen that earlier in my career before I made this a non-negotiable, Lena. And I don't know if you've had this experience at all. But we'd go in and we train teachers in something. And then the next time we came to see them, they would say that some admin came in and did an observation and criticized them for it. I mean, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we've seen that. Yep, because the admin didn't understand. So we just don't play those games anymore. It's just you've got to be in the room with us and we've got to be on the same page if you want us to work with your teachers. So, yes, that's a. And, you know, some of the administrative bodies we work with really want to take on systems change and don't and some don't. Some just really want us to train everybody on co-teaching and have everybody using the same strategies and the same language. And that's what they want to do, which is not my favorite thing, but certainly okay. And that's the thing. You don't come in with this toolbox of strategies. This isn't like a 
strategy. You can't strategy your way out of this. This is an entire mindset shift and well, community yes and building. No. Yes and no. If people want to really take on inclusive education, it is a whole mindset shift in addition to a huge, huge toolbox. But if what people want from us is to help their co-teachers not do what you're saying, that one teacher is just looking like an aide, we can come and teach tons of strategies for to get them to move away from that. It doesn't mean that the philosophy changes or the range of kids that they include changes, but we can get people to co-teach much better and do much better for the, the kids who happen to be in that class mm-hmm. with a huge toolbox that we bring. So we bring the philosophy and all that part if people want to go there. But there's a tremendous amount of tools for co-teaching, for differentiating instruction, for modifying, for community building that can be applied just in the co-teaching classes, if that's what people want to do. So question for you. We, as we're, I, I'm looking at the time, it looks like we've got to wrap up already. And I feel like that we we only scratched the surface. And, and I want to know, many of our audience they are they're STEM educators. A lot of them are administrators, leaders in the field. Teachers are leaders in the field as well. What can what can our audience take away? What is one thing, or maybe three things that they can that they can start? Well, I think the first thing that anybody in a leadership position, whether they're the leader of a classroom, the leader of a building, the leader of a department, the leader of a school system is to take a hard, honest look at their own belief about inclusion. Who do you believe belongs? Where does that line stop? Who don't you believe belongs? Why? The first piece of any of this is to look at your own belief system and get really clear on what you believe and why you believe it, and if there's any room to stretch it or not. Because you can't plan for what's needed systemically if you haven't first done a deep dive into your own belief system. Again, whether you're leading a classroom as a teacher or a department or a school or a school district. And we do have some questions that people can ask themselves if people want to contact me and ask and ask for those. So that's the first, the first step, always, regardless of what you're looking to do. You wanted two more. I think the next piece is What kind of supports, training are you providing for your co-teachers so that they have the opportunity to work together, plan together, problem solve together, and that they have been given some tools to use? Because just like you were saying, Lena, people come out of pre-service and it's just like, okay, go. That's what people do to co-teachers too. Oh, we're going to put these two people in a room together and just they'll figure it out. And that's not okay. There's a whole, I like to say technology, but not technology the way we talk about technology. There's a whole bank of strategies and techniques that people need to know to co-teach well. But we just expect them to co-teach well because we put them together. So what are you providing them for relationship building, for partnership building? What are you providing for them so that they have some things to try in their classroom? And what kind of support are you giving them to do those things? Well, and to interject, this can actually work with with classrooms that have aids too, right? Sure. Well, sure, on some level. I mean, co-teaching involves two teachers. So when you have aids or paraprofessionals of some sort, you can do some modifications of some of these techniques, but the communication part absolutely needs to be there when you have more than one adult working in a classroom, which that's a whole other thing in those self-contained situations 
those special classes, when there's a power professional in there, how does that all, all work? So that would be the second piece. And then the third piece would be, who is your problem-solving team? Hmm. Who, is, who are the people who come from different perspectives, have different skill sets, who when teacher comes to you and says, hey, Beth is really struggling in my class and I'm out of ideas. There are people who have ideas that are past preferential seating and give them five less problems than everybody else that really can think outside of the box for how to plan and program for this kid. So who is that brainstorm team? Who is that problem-solving team? Yeah. And so those would be three things that I would start with. Wow. Wow, Beth. This has been such a rich conversation and all of your, uh, any resources and anything will be added to the show notes for this, for this episode. Thank you so much for for everything, for all the stories and, and the, the rich experiences and knowledge that you're able to share with our team. Thank you, Lena. It's been an honor to be here. And, you know, I love talking to you any old time. So thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Teaching STEM for Real, where, as you can see, we keep it real for our STEM educators. If you enjoyed it, make sure that you are subscribed for our future content and please leave us a five-star rating and review. Interested in bringing STEM for Real to your school or district? Visit us at www.stemforreal.org where you will find the show notes and resources for this episode along with how to partner with us. Until then, thank you for helping us make STEM for Real.